and perfect Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas that they get to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of Tathagata's words. Yeah. Good evening. Thanks for joining us this evening for our first uh, full moon ceremony in some time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know it had been quite a while. <laughs> so, but uh, it was nice. I certainly had a lot of meaning for me to be able to return to that uh, particular ritual. So. And with that, that's kind of a good segue into the section of mountains and waters that we're looking at now. Uh, up and down of the Buddha way. Because uh, the, the precepts, our reaffirmation of, of, of those precepts, every month in the full moon ceremony, kind of to guide us in the up and down of the Buddha way. In ways that uh, hopefully, uh, without having to, to be too explicit about it, but in the course of our discussion tonight, hopefully that'll, that connection will start to you know, come, come forth for you. So, the beginning of this section, Shahaku says that the way of water penetrates everywhere. And remember that in this uh, entire section on water, that, that the water serves as a metaphor for the Dharma the way of the Dharma, the flowing of the Dharma. So when Shahaku and Dogen say that the way of water penetrates everywhere, it's, it's basically saying that the Dharma penetrates everywhere, even in the places where it doesn't seem to get there. the places that we struggle to find the Dharma, places that really kind of grab a hold of us. And rather than being liberating to us, they actually seem to enclose us and bring on our feelings of separation of dukkha. The Dharma is there too. But sometimes 
we have to look for it. Sometimes it isn't so clear and obvious. And other times it seems to be so. But actually, I think uh, being able to find the Dharma, to see the truth of its penetrating everywhere in the more difficult places is far richer for our overall practice. If, if our practice is too easy, uh, then when the challenges present themselves, as inevitably they do, we're going, going to be uh, completely knocked off our cushion, so to speak. Completely tossed around. So to be able to, to practice with finding Dharma everywhere builds resilience so that we can stay on our path, recognize we're always on our path, whatever gets presented to us. Because of this, the truth of this statement that the way of water penetrates everywhere. And maybe a good, good example of what I was just saying is, is conveyed by Shahaku in his next statement, that there's five times as much water below the earth's surface as in the ocean. So there's the water or the Dharma that we readily see. And then there's the Dharma that's not so apparent, but it's there. And of course, in the case of physical water, we have that understanding. We know that, but, but we need to have the same type of knowledge as it relates to the Dharma. Because truly the water we see in the ocean is just a tiny part of the entire water of our planet. which would include, of course, all the water and all the beings on the planet, including ourselves. Includes the water in our atmosphere. Includes the water under, underground. All this water that we don't see. And what we do see, the Dharma we do see, is just a tiny part. So this, in this section here, I think it's, it's perhaps uh, some of the richest metaphors of Dharma and water to draw that out in ways that maybe we can find helpful for our own practice and our own understanding. And since, come back to the physical uh, aspect here, up to 70% of the human body is water, 
So in a sense, living beings are various embodiments of water. To see ourselves as various embodiments of Dharma using the same line of thought. Not very controversial, not very radical. Most people would say, yeah. That's not too much of a stretch to see living beings as various embodiments of water. That being so, nor is it a stretch to see ourselves and all other living beings as various embodiments of Dharma. And of course, that's the crux, the heart of our of the matter for us is to have that. That's what awakening is all about, is to awaken to that very fact. And to see it. So that there's the water we see and the water we don't see, but we still know it's there. And so it is with the Dharma. So even though we don't see Dharma in certain aspects of our life or in certain beings that we encounter, recognizing it's there. It's there. It's the nature of Dharma, just as it's the nature of water to flow through all things. And of course, we could improve upon the water metaphor in our present day. That was a, a pretty, pretty good metaphor, certainly in Dogen's day and earlier, but now with our knowledge of what really does embody all things, sentient and non-sentient, the core elements of all of all form, of all material reality, yeah, we could we could uh, see uh, atoms and molecules, subatomic particles, as at the heart of the embodiment of all all beings, and so it is with Dharma. Dharma would also encompass all of those particles. But but now to turn our attention from that to this matter of up and down, going up, coming down. In Mahayana Buddhism, the form of Buddhism with the Bodhisattva ideal, which is very much embedded in our full moon ceremony. Going up signifies studying and practicing Dharma for ourselves. Our practice. And going down is helping others. 
So the full moon ceremony is very, very applicable to both of these aspects of our practice, which ultimately is just one practice. I mean, that's one thing to keep in mind. Anytime we see opposites presented to us in Dharma teaching, our mind should immediately resist, make make an intentional effort not to get sucked into that duality, to become trapped by it. It's, it's meaningful and can be helpful to look at our practices having the upward movement and the downward movement. But ultimately, it, there is no up and down that's separate one from the other. And if you think about it in terms of our practice, going up the mountain is, is ultimately no different than going down the mountain and vice versa. Our practice for ourselves is for the benefit of other beings. And when we're practicing for the benefit of other beings, it's cultivating our own practice. It's for our own benefit too. What's the distinction ultimately? We can talk about those two aspects, but ultimately, doesn't doesn't really hold up as having its own existence. They're empty. There's just the practice, the embodied practice, the active practice. Of cultivating ourselves along with others, cultivating or as Hong Ji so aptly put it, cultivating the empty field, which was the title that Tigan gave to his uh, translation of, of his teachings. Cultivating the empty field. That's what we're doing. Within that is included going up, and going down. And another thing to keep in mind as we look into this matter of of movement, which is part and parcel of our embodied practice, as we talked about last week. We all have to move have to move somewhere. So I pointed to a Bob Dylan lyric to to get that point across. But if we're to measure or decide where something locates and moves, we can only do that if we have a fixed point of reference. That becomes necessary in order to do that. And Dogen then asks, is there such a fixed point of reference? It's important we consider that. 
because we do speaking of of our mind getting kind of trapped into a way of seeing things the way we orient ourselves to things always based of necessity on a fixed point but there is no fixed point that that point is always moving just as our lives are always moving because we're the fixed point but we're not a fixed point <laughs> We're not. Uh, Shahaku uh, nicely uh, points that out to us when he, he puts it this way. He says, what I wanted to do in my 20s is not interesting at all in my 60s. I can relate to that. <laughs> There's some rich dharma in that observation. And again, this is part of, of seeing the Dharma flowing through all things, flowing through our particular Dharma position, which has been so important throughout this chapter on water. This notion of, of a particular position And to expand on this a little bit more, we often make value judgments based on a certain origin, based on a particular uh, point of view. Then we, we assign, you know, this is good, this is bad. categorizing things based on our karmically fixed views, our system of values, desires, preferences, obligations, responsibilities, possibilities, capabilities. But the water or the Dharma, one important thing to realize as we explore this is that it exists prior to our attempt to grasp it with our intellect. It's more fundamental than anything we can construct to try and understand it. That's not to say we shouldn't use our intellect. It's just saying that we should have this understanding about it so that we don't treat 
the creations of our intellect as the ultimate. This is the big, big problem we keep coming back to. The Dogen keeps coming back to us. This leads us astray constantly. So this brings us to the realization that we cannot evaluate life using a starting point and a measuring standard that are part of life. Evaluating life with things that are a manifestation of that life. What in philosophy's term circular reasoning? <laughs> That's an easy trap to fall into. We think we're actually getting somewhere, but we're not getting anywhere further. We're just taking our our it, it's kind of taking our, our current fixed view and we're just affirming it. <laughs> Taking pieces of that view to, to serve as confirmation of it. Which is all just another way of saying that, that the, the ultimate point is beyond our capability of describing it. It's why uh, all of our spiritual traditions seem to ultimately develop a a mystical uh, division of, of, of their traditions. Because those that that uh, really plow this turf deeply, it's inevitable you're going to come to this understanding that the ultimate truth cannot be captured in such a way. It's too vast it's part part of the package and being boundless our intellect wants to create the boundaries around it so we can define it say what it is but the ultimate can't be pinned down that way And to kind of reinforce what I had just said, uh, Shahaku's uh, statement here is that we don't need to eliminate our systems of measurement, but we need to know that they're only part of the universal flow of water, which cannot be contained within our system of values. So we continue to evaluate things to measure things. But this is only part 
of the universal flow of water. So one part of it is going up. One part of it is going down. Or all the other ways that we can uh, separate out our life in various ways. It can be meaningful to us. It's not about eliminating all that. It's just to put it in its proper context. To see that they're only part of this universal flow of water. And that makes such a difference when we can do that. It frees us from our attachments to our views. and our measurements, and our valuations. We can have them, but hold them lightly. Not in a fixed way. And as Shahaku gave the example earlier about the difference from self between 20-year-old Shahaku and the 60-year-old Shahaku, to recognize that our the way we measure things is constantly changing. But each time we, we measure or value, evaluate something, it has that sense for us of being an ultimate valuation. This is it. It's rare that we can bring that element of prajna to us and recognize that it seems this way to me at this time. In this overall Dharma position, this is how it's appearing. But it's not an ultimate thing. To be able to hold our views in that way, As Shahaku puts it, this is how we can avoid the poisonous contact between the self and the myriad dharmas. The things we encounter in our life, the poisonous contact when we bring our fixed measurements and views and valuations to what we encounter. And we're not going to change because this is right. And the sense then becomes that that, that becomes a, a virtue. You have to stand for something, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you're just, uh, uh, you just don't stand for anything. There's, uh, you, you have you're lacking totally in values, and that brings us back to the full moon ceremony. Clearly, to 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 that's an example of a ritual that to to practice it deeply, immerse yourself into 
into it deeply. Uh, it just it just oozes out ultimate values, the way to live a life. But yet in doing that, it's not doing it from the standpoint of a fixed view. All, all 10 of the grave precepts are about values, but from the ultimate standpoint, taking that and incorporating it into our, our, the Dharma positions of our lives, of dealing with this and that, so that we can, we can tr- work with them without this poisonous contact that is all too often what happens when we don't tread lightly through the Dharma fields, through the empty field, which is Cultivating the empty field is to practice the 16 precepts that are part of, that are the heart of the uh, full moon ceremony. It is the ceremony. That's to cultivate the empty field. The empty field of our lives. We all have our own empty field, but they're all empty. They share that in common. But the Dharma positions are all over the place. All over the place. And from those Dharma positions, our views, our desires arise. They're given birth. But in cultivating the empty field, and to come back again to Shahaku's expression of, of uh, in this section, he says, this spaciousness of the empty field, this spaciousness makes our life more peaceful, harmonious, compassionate, and flexible. Everywhere is connected with everywhere as one seamless space. That's all we can say. And he he brings up a teaching that we should touch on a bit just because it is an important Buddhist teaching about the three worlds. Uh, These three worlds are desire of material or form and then of no form, the formless realm. 
So there's desire, form, and formless. The world of desire is the world of our, our life. That's where we live. So when we first come to practice, it's out of the world of desire. So we come to practice with desire. We have desire. This is what I want from the practice. This is what I'm looking for. So it's only when we enter into working with form and no form that we can start to go beyond just desire. It's not that we leave desire behind, it's part of us, but we're going beyond. We're we're now entering into other aspects of our existence that because of how strongly desire affects us, these other aspects kind of completely drop out, drop away from our existence as far as our level of awareness is concerned. Of course, they're still there. But it's only through practice that we come to understand that fact and that they are always still there. It's part of the meaning of this teaching that the Dharma reaches everywhere. There's nowhere it doesn't penetrate to. So these other worlds of of form and of of, uh, no form are realms of meditation or samadhi. So we've, in in other contexts, uh, I've spoken about them in in connection, for instance, with the jhanas. There are four jhanas that are termed the form jhanas, and then there are four, four, the other four are the formless jhanas. So these two realms are about meditation and samadhi practice. Which just from that, you you can see hopefully how it's removed from desire. Because in order to to be practicing uh, meditation, samadhi, there's this absorption. In order for desire to take place, it, it feeds off of separation of self and other. Concentration is the elimination of that gap between self and other. So desire gets closed down. And now we can enter into the realms of form and formlessness. And just not to get bogged down too much in in these uh, aspects of form and formlessness, but but the the last of the the formless jhanas 
is uh, is the uh, neither perception nor non-perception. And Shahaku talks about the highest layer of these samadhis as being called the heaven of non-conception, of not getting persistently trapped by the traps of our own construction. That's what our conceptualizations are. They're traps to pull things in. Just like we we trap uh, various things for for food or for other purposes, you know, we trap things in our conceptualizations for our intellectual purposes to control things. So this heaven of non-conception is to be able to let our thought, to open the hand of thought, to set that aside. That's the formless realm. But even that, and this is where I, I want to finish up tonight, uh, this leads Shahaku to say that the heaven of no conception is not a higher place, and the Avicii hell is not a lower. Come back to this, the up and down of the Buddha way, uh, because we immediately get caught, caught by that valuation. So that's why it's so important to call this to our attention here, that both are the entire Dharma realm. Each thing we encounter, whether it's the hell realm or the heaven realm, they're the entire Dharma realm. Everything that's true for everything. Each condition of our lives within the six realms of heaven and hell and animal, hungry ghost, human, and the, uh, the fighting demons. Each condition of our lives within the six realms where we are trans transmigrating is the entire Dharma realm. Each of them, rather than seeing them as, as existing as the separate realms with their own existence, turning them into something ultimate. But actually, each of those realms is the entire Dharma realm. And the six realms exist right now within our life. It's not something awaiting us after death for the site of our rebirth. They're right here and now. The hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm. So whatever your condition is right now, it's the entire Dharma realm.
which echoes Dogen's teaching from Genjo Koan. In one place in particular, where he talks about uh, how birds are flying in the entire sky. When their when their need is is small, their field is small. When their need is great, field is great. But but you should know that each bird is is flying in the entire sky. And the designations between the large field and the small field are, are not, they don't hold up ultimately. That's just relatively speaking from a, a, a particular place which is always moving. So that's pretty much everything I had to get across tonight. So stop here and you have anything? This does uh, bring us to the end of this. If I can, I didn't want to change, but no. I have a book to pick. Oh, yeah. This one, David Hinton's book. Um, I'll let you show it on the screen. It's called Existence, a Story. David Hinton is a, a Chinese translator and a Chan practitioner. And I found the book particularly helpful because he talks about, actually, he talks about presence and absence, which is nothing more than form and emptiness. Yeah. But he talks about it in terms of his translations of poetry, of, China, of, of classical Chinese poetry. It was very helpful in understanding in a different way some of the concepts. 
Um, I've read another book of his, and, and I can't tell you the name of it, something about a mountain. Okay. And I loaned it out and never got it back. <laughs> so, but, but I do think um, just the linguistics, one of the things he talks about is Chinese not having subjects. And therefore, it was fertile ground for all of the Zen ideas. Sure. So, it's worth a read. Try and hang on to a piece of land after we're dead now. <laughs> <laughs> 
was to act in uh, in such a way that we were literally cultivating the empty field without intention. So that would be an example of the formless field of merit. And ecodharma would be like that in, 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 a, in a more limited field within that pertaining to the environment. But of course, you know, being in the uh, formless field, we recognize, well, actually, ecodharma is in the formless field. It's, there, there is no ecodharma that's not part of everything else. And that's true for everything, including karmic consciousness. We can't isolate any of those. So they're all in the formless field. It's just a question of how do we relate to them and the way we typically relate to them. And this is what makes for the poisonous contact is we relate to them as these 
isolated fixed things when they're not. So we don't treat them as they truly are. We, we treat them as something far less. You know, in the imagery of, of the Buddhist time, you know, it would be like taking uh, uh, one of the great sages as a stand-in for, for the ultimate reality and, and uh, you know, treating them like some pauper, uh, some very, you know, suffering limited thing. Uh, not seeing in that, even in the pauper, that actually, you know, it's, uh, it, it, this, the oneness of the sage and the pauper. So the poisonous contact is when we keep, you know, fixing things. And the, liber the liberating contact is when we remove them from that fixed limited place and all of a sudden we see that that the dharma does truly run through all things and we see that everywhere we turn and everybody we encounter so yeah it's a good good you know, point of uh, comparison between the karmic field and in the formless field and it points to why you know it's it's not about escaping our our karma it's it's to be liberated from it that's all <laughs> there's still karma but but we see it as just part of part of this bigger formless field The ultimate field that everything is part of. All right. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of buddha's way beings are numberless i vow to save them delusions are inexhaustible i vow to end them dharma gates are boundless i vow to enter them buddha's way is unsurpassable I vow to become it. All right. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, we can. You can leave the chant if there are any chant books out. We can leave those out, but we'll gather up the uh, full monster.